Cheerio, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we're reviewing Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Is Nolan's English war epic his finest hour? Or two? Or should Chris stick with Dreamscapes and Cape Crusaders? Chris Gallagher? No, Chris Nolan. Oh! We'll also recap week nine of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. Finally, we'll wrap up as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... So it's well known that Christopher Nolan is a very, very big fan of the IMAX movie format. So I'm a little bit curious, guys, how you saw Dunkirk. Chris, did you see it? Uh, I feel like you just ripped it off the Internet. That's that sounds like you. I would do no such you thing. You just bit torrented Dunkirk. So I, I actually I saw it twice and it was a bit of a weird experience. So or not a weird experience, but a it's it's odd that the, the two versions that I saw kind of combine the optimum version, I guess, because the optimum way to see this would be an IMAX 70 millimeter, the way that that like I think 70% of this film or something 70% and some change was shot in IMAX. Mm-hmm. So that is the way that Christopher Nolan would want you to see it. That is the way that that is his intended, you know, presentation format. But um, I, the first time I saw it, I saw it in 70 millimeter, but not IMAX. So it was actually, it wasn't on an IMAX screen. So it was cropped down to 2.4 to one, which is like kind of an ultra wide screen. Whereas IMAX is actually your old like standard format TV four by three, more or less, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's on a giant tall screen. So it feels immersive. The second time I saw it on that giant tall screen, but it was IMAX digital. So I've seen it in 70 millimeter. I've seen it on IMAX, but I haven't seen the 70 millimeter. So you've half-assed it twice and you're (laughs) hoping the half-assing makes a full ass. Exactly. (laughs) What about you, Jake? Uh, I live in the middle of nowhere, apparently, because I couldn't get to a 70 millimeter screening. I guess there was one a little over an hour away from me, but I just settled for the, I think it was just a digital IMAX. I don't think it was with laser. I didn't even know that was a thing until I started looking into Dunkirk. Did, did I do the right thing? Let me ask you this, Jake. What was your screen? Do you know what your screen shape was? Big old TV. Okay, then it probably was with. Is it a? Is it an old school IMAX screen? Has it has it been around for a while? Mm, no, probably the last five years. E, okay, then you might be you might be on the like digital IMAX Xeon. I, I, I will say this. I thought the image looked amazing, but when the Dunkirk like name came up, especially right at the beginning, because I was sitting about three roads back from the aisle. Yeah. Uh, I could see a little pixelation around the edge of the, the letters. Was it called Unker? <laughs> what, uh, Hunter, what, what format did you see it on? I can only assume I saw it in legitimate IMAX because of that, the Cinemark IMAX. Cinemark IMAX is the only legitimate IMAX movie screen. Ladies and gentlemen. In Tulsa. The only person <laughs> who will be able to review this film having seen it the way it was meant to be seen is myself. But, was no, it, that's, but that that's, wasn't 70 that's, millimeter that's digital. IMAX. That's, that's the same digital IMAX that I saw. Oh, so it's, but it's the screen is the full size screen. It's but they don't they don't have the 70 millimeter projector anymore. Hmm. Um, so none of us to. really saw it then we could say. I guess not. So, so if I don't see it in, in 70 millimeter, it, should I just see it in a regular regular screen? I mean, here's so here's the thing. Here's why I wanted to talk about this, because I, you know, I've experienced it in 70 millimeter technically, but in a, a you know, wider format. I've seen it in in IMAX. Both were great experiences. I think no matter how you see this film, as long as it's not like a a DCP that is not very well maintained and it's super dark, you're going to enjoy this movie. 
Um, Jake, my, my same, like, I really don't like IMAX digital on a format spectrum because even the IMAX with lasers is only 4k, which the most DCPs are only 2k, which is basically the resolution of a Blu-ray. Essentially, it's a little bit wider, but it's the resolution of a Blu-ray. Um, the IMAX with lasers is 4K because they actually use two 2K projectors that are projected on top of each other to make it 4K. But that screen's so big that you really need something bigger. Like, optimally, at least 8K. I mean, something about And, you know, now we're at a point where really, as far as digital cameras go, um, 16 would be pushing beyond what what even they can do hmm. so is there any kind of format that would get like 16 to 18k well there's i mean i think technically maybe you could scan imax film into that but um i mean like for instance the red weapon that's only 8k the re65 that's 6.5k um so there you know as far as digital goes there's not anything that reaches that but even i think even updating imax to you know an 8k would be nice it is you i mean the thing for me is i always see kind of a rastery when you see text on screen you can really see some rough edges but they do say that 70 millimeter is about the equivalent of that 18k mark is that right that i mean that that's a resolution thing technically yes yeah so so you really are seeing a lot more of the picture if you see it if you can see it in 70 millimeter, you really should. You are, you are. But I mean, the thing is that I, I still have kind of problems with the IMAX format because it is a presentation format first, as far as, I mean, it's great as a theater experience, but you're never going to be able to recreate that experience at home. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, like the way most people are going to experience this movie in the future, once it's out of theaters is going to be on a home television screen. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's great for, it's great for now. It's great for if there's ever a revival, but like, other than that, it's, uh, I guess it makes it an event and that's great. And I, you know, I had, I had a great time seeing it on IMAX, but, um, I, I guess my, my whole thing is like, while I enjoyed that, I saw it in two great formats. Like I, I honestly don't think it matters as long as it looks good to you really the only way to truly experience this story is to be stranded on a beach in dunkirk and to have german fighters trying to kill you that's the only proper way to experience is that what's going on in that movie that's the one i saw yeah the version i saw um but there's an article here called does it really matter what format you see dunkirk in we watched it three times to find out and that is from slate.com so we'll post that in the show notes and we'll have their august journalist team uh contribute however one of my favorite films of all time is actually coming out in a 70 millimeter restoration lawrence of arabia chris uh how are we going to be able to see this or is it just been announced not going to be able to see it in tulsa it's only been announced so it right it um i I mean i think we're we're at least a few years out Um. um but this uh this distribution company uh, called Park Circus has they've released a trailer announcing that they are restoring it in uh, full 70 millimeter glory, which is what it was uh, originally shot in and presented in and has I don't think has been presented in in, you know, decades. They did have a 4K restoration. Uh, I don't know, like maybe five years ago or so or within the past five years, um, which I did not get a chance to see. I've I've still never seen this movie on the big screen. 
Um, and so once this finally comes out in 70 millimeter, that's probably how, uh, I'm going to try to finally, uh, finally do it because I'll be perfectly honest, like watching it on like a 32 inch flat screen in like college, I was a little underwhelmed by this movie. I like, there are things that I like appreciate and get, but I think that immersive experience in a theater is what I really need with Lawrence of Arabia to fully embrace it. Also, maybe the maturity that I have now. See, the way I want to see it is kind of the way Edward G. Robinson died in Soylent Green. I don't know if either of you have ever seen that movie, but what they did yes. is they planted people in front of a giant movie screen yeah. and then, you know, poisoned them and then turned them into food. Yeah. So that's actually how I want to go is watching Lawrence <laughs> Arabian 70 millimeter and then being turned into food. You know, we're probably only a couple years away from that anyway. So maybe maybe those two things actually They'll coincide. Actually coincide. Yeah. Look, there's only one movie I want to see in 70 millimeter as they turn me into food, and that's Kenneth Branagh's hand. So when that comes back, wake me up and then kill me. So we've got we've got this big epic that we're all looking forward to. However, in the meantime, I think we're all looking forward to talking about Christopher Nolan's latest. So why don't we dive right in? Yeah, let's do it. The call went out. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. What about? He's on me. Christopher Nolan doesn't make small movies. In the past decade, he's directed five feature films, not a single one with a budget under $100 million. Franchise films, original properties, it doesn't matter. Studios are willing to dole out the big bucks because Nolan's films seem to always provide a solid return on investment. And this is how he ended up making a very, very expensive war film with no main characters, no clear villain, and no traditional story arc. Dunkirk is a throwback to the visual grammar of silent cinema. Nolan doesn't waste any time on expository dialogue that sets up a rudimentary three-act structure or on superfluous backstories that are designed to help the audience relate to the soldiers because they've all got girls waiting for them back home. Instead, the director, in collaboration with cinematographer Hoyte van Hoytema, immersed the audience in an ocean of images portraying a treacherous world where hundreds of thousands of soldiers only have one thing in mind, survival. Throughout the film, Nolan's colossal IMAX camera zeroes in on faces time and time and time again. And this is where the true story lies. The eyes of Fionn Whitehead, Mark Rylance, and Tom Hardy are the film's narrator. And at times, they pack the great emotional pathos found in the best films of the silent era, like Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, or F.W. Murnau's Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Coming off of Interstellar, a film with fits of dialogue so clunky that a character literally tries to explain to the audience how love works, it's refreshing to see Nolan attempting to tell a story that almost entirely relies on visual literacy. But guys, I'm curious. While Dunkirk's unconventional approach obviously worked for me, some have criticized it for flat characters, an underdeveloped story, and an overall lack of emotion. So is Christopher Nolan's 70mm IMAX epic a masterstroke in movie making? 
or nothing more than an expensive, unengaging, and hyperindulgent exercise. Gentlemen, I think you will agree with me that Christopher Nolan is the most audacious filmmaker working today. I think that he is the only guy who could have made this film, and I don't mean just literally made this film. He's the only one who could have convinced Warner Brothers to spend $200 million on a summer tentpole on what is an obscure piece of history to us in America. Right. Um, this, But a, a war movie. But, $200 but not million even... dollars and released it as a summer tentpole with basically no stars and no main characters. I mean, that is just astounding to me that he's able to do it. That is Mel Gibson level astounding. That's what that is. <laughs> Let's let's not get out of hand here. No, no, no. Uh, he 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 would he would take something this crazy and do it, but he just can't get that money like this anymore. Exactly. Um, it's just that's what that's was my key takeaway first and foremost out of this is just what a wonderful relationship and what it, how great it is for us as movie fans that we have this magnificent director who has so earned the trust not only of the studio but of his audience that he can tell this story about something that isn't top of mind to most of us. That being the uh, retreat of Dunkirk. But as a story well, that very as, much as Americans, as Americans, yes, of course, as Americans. But we're the primate, we're the biggest audience, us in China, and it's not like this is something that's going to play well in China, right? So, but audiences trust Christopher Nolan so much that they're going to come out in droves, not necessarily to like a, certainly not to a Batman level, but still enough to justify Warner spending that kind of money. I mean, that is that is really the ideal to have a great filmmaker who has a studio that's willing to do anything. Because he's got such a great relationship with his audience. And, you know, it's one of those things that I'm not sure how long this is going to last. And I am fully willing to ride along with it as long as it does, as long as he keeps making stuff like this. Honestly, I went into this pretty cold because I didn't love Interstellar. It had some great moments, but overall, I thought it was a really clunky film. Well, we're going to beg to differ because there was enough for me to really like that movie. I thought it was clunky in spots. I'm not arguing, but there was enough in there that I I didn't lose trust in Nolan or anything crazy like that. Yeah, here's the thing about Nolan is that sometimes his worst instincts will take over, but he is so engaging because whenever you put unengaging, I was getting ready to say he might be many things, but he's never unengaging. You know what I mean? Even his bad movies are like, well, none of his movies are bad. Even if his movies that are weaker, you're still wrapped into it. I don't know. I would argue that The Dark Knight Rises is a diminishing return sort of rewatch. Like I each time I watch it, I like it less and less and less. There is a lot of Internet movie conversation that it will eventually turn to Batman. So before we to- <laughs> before we just completely okay. well let me let me finish my my yeah. my point like my my trajectory so my trajectory is that movie's pretty bad and then Interstellar is a mixed bag and that's how I ended up where where I am with with going into Dunkirk being pleasantly surprised because um you're right like his he is a man of instincts and he indulges in them and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's always fairly interesting, but I, I would argue there are still people who find it unengaging because I mean, I've, I've seen, you know, in, in reviews time and time and time again, when his movies come out where they say, Oh, well it's, it's, it's not engaging because it's just a, a splattering of, you know, people complain a lot about the score that, um, that he, when he works with Hans Zimmer, you know, it's just this chugging along where it feels like you're just being beaten over the head. And so it's, uh, it's not a, you know, it's kind of like with, with, you know, big, big, big action. Right. So where, b- before I pin this love letter to Nolan that I'm about to write, that I was <laughs> writing while you guys were talking. Yeah. Um, I, I, here's, I'll, I'll list my Nolan complaints from past films. I think he really, he is such a master of emotionally bringing you through a picture that he leaves out a lot of details to make that work. 
And and it's it's a very dreamlike experience where a lot of times I'll watch and I'll be like, I really enjoyed that. And then on the ride home, I'm just like, none of that made sense. Why was Catwoman exactly. even on that motor, motor motorcycle? Like, I don't I don't understand yeah, anything. The, the, the plot holes are big enough to dr- drive through in most of his movies. But while you're watching it, you are so intensely engaged. You don't notice until after the fact. And and this is this movie entirely relies on that, too, because the way that he's using this elastic timeline um, he he very intentionally places every shot and every moment in not the place that logically makes sense, but in the place that is the optimal way to draw out your uh, your sort of fear and the tension that he's building. And it's all it's all this big this big climax. And but I think it really, really works here. This is the ultimate war is hell film because it's gotten to the point where the war is hell kind of trope has become cliche you and i chris i think our fourth episode we reviewed american sniper and that was something that wore that the war's held da, 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 that kind of thing on its sleeve and the effect was it was kind of rain hollow this is very much this is a truly war as hell movie because it puts you right in the middle of it i mean the within the first i think minute you hear this horrifying gunshot of yeah. this guy getting shot at in the middle of the village and like people live through that yeah like, it feels it feels so visceral like yeah, it i is, mean here's the thing you need to see this movie uh, not just because oh my gosh it's a great movie you need to see it you need to see this movie because you need to get what people went through what people lived through what they died for i mean this is a quintessential moment or excuse me not quintessential but a pivotal moment in western history that as we point out here in America, most of us don't know anything about it. And I'm so grateful that this is going to get a big audience. The crowd I saw it with was mostly composed of teenagers. That's awesome. Both both crowds I saw it with were pretty mixed. Um, the the one that I saw it with here was more, it was actually skewed pretty old, um, but still still a decent sort of mix between them. I, I saw I saw it in a mixed crowd with assigned seating and a and a seventy year old man yelled at a thirty year old for for taking his seat. I don't know who was right there, but uh, it, it <laughs> was the seventy year old crowd. Did the seventy year old man punch the thirty year old man? No, he basically said AMC's going to hell, and he just went and sat somewhere else. And the guy kept trying to move. He's like, "No, stay in that seat. I'm just sitting over here. I can't. I hate this assigned seating." Well, I agree. I salute you, old man. But anyway, just again, this is something that was so important to the war effort, so important, not just for Great Britain, but the Western world entirely. And so, you know, I'm just grateful for him for making this movie. And then on the top of it, it's just an extreme, extremely compelling filmmaking exercise it, it and and that's that's sort of where my my real question lies though is does it feel just like an exercise or does it transcend that for me i mean it absolutely transcends. here's the it. deal i'm getting ready to break my own rule uh whenever i saw the dark knight what really <laughs> what i really loved about the dark knight was he took crime action crime storytelling techniques and applied it to the superhero movie here he does the same thing with the war movie. It's not crime. You use the silent film. There's a lot of that. I feel like a horror movie almost at times. A, a, a bit, but like a, it's, it's a little more, I definitely, I definitely feel that because it's like building tension, but it's more restrained than I think at least the, the modern horror movie. I mean, I think it's, but the way that he's using the camera, the way that he's using editing is it is a style that you see a lot in like 
twenties to like early thirties, you know, just before we get into sound, just before sound comes in and like sets cinema back like a generation, essentially um, it's something that, you know, as, as the masters, the first masters of filmmaking were really learning how to push the boundaries. I felt a lot of that in this, that I haven't felt that much since uh, si- the silent era. Like it, it felt like a lot of these places where, you know, he's taking risks and he's taking chances with the way that he assembles the, the images together and just says, I trust the audience is going to mm-hmm. get through it and understand it and see the, the leading sort of line that I, and I give. Nobody at Nolan could get away with that, which is just incredible. I thought the, the most influence came from suspense film, something not quite like Hitchcock, but something along those lines, because it always, it, I I didn't like ungrip my my armrest for the whole film. It was just mm-hmm. a nonstop uh, playing with your emotions, keeping them going. Not horror so much, but definitely suspense. Well, and as Nolan said, I mean, he 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 described it as a ride, but then he corrected himself and said, "Well, it's not a ride, though. It's not supposed to be right." It was just—it's a stroke of genius to realize that if you're going to do a war movie, you need—it should not be pleasant. But it manages to do it in a way that Hacksaw Ridge did not. Hacksaw Ridge was also a very unpleasant war experience, and it also made me think the same things. Like, I can't believe human beings went through something like this. But a lot of people left that and said, "Oh, it's borderline, you know, pornographic, exploitative of." Of all this blood and torsos and heads and all this stuff, this didn't have that. This is not gratuitous at all. Yeah, and and yeah, that's the thing is again, much like Dark Knight, all of the violent is implicit. You don't really, I don't think you really see any I mean, violence. You per see, se. you see the guy blown up by the bomb on the beach, but that's about as far right, as right. You don't goes. see gore. Yeah. yeah, there's no gore, but at the same time, somebody getting shot off camera is just as effective as someone getting even more than someone getting shot on camera in a lesser movie. I mean, in in the opening scene, you see people shot on camera as it you know it, mm-hmm. it goes from a dozen or half dozen British soldiers down to just the the main guy that we're right. following, whose name I don't even know because it doesn't matter because it's a silent film. Tommy, I think. Yeah. Um. Sure. Did they ever say his name? Though? They don't. But on IMDb, yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't think you see a lot of those guys get shot. You don't see like a you don't see a squib blow up or anything. You just you hear it and you see the go down and you know and and it's just such a like but that's all you need yeah you, you know it's they're so visceral mm-hmm. it's so in the moment that it works so well the the level aside from the the filmmaking skill what you actually see on screen could have been in like a 60s tv show it's that level of somebody getting shot yeah but yeah, the exactly. filmmaking makes it so impactful well filmmaking yeah and sound because we've talked a lot about the imax the the editing etc even though hans zimmer isn't the greatest composer what he, under Nolan's direction, did here was very impactful insofar as that you could have done this movie of just visuals and it would have worked and you could have done the sound independent mm. with, with no visuals and it would have worked because both combined together. Horror movie implies, you know, slasher film or something like that. When I say horror movie, I mean you're watching something that's meant to be horrifying. Right. You know what I mean? So it's not a traditional horror movie. It's a I, I'm bothered and I'm uncomfortable watching this, but in a good way. Well, and and it has elements of like sort of the siege horror movie, like locked up, like like something like the thing where you're locked up in a in a place. Right. Um, there's there's several moments of that. I mean, between when they're you have the soldiers on the on the mole and the bombers are coming by, that's a very like intense moment. Or the boat later on when you've got the the platoon of guys plus a, a couple others in there and and the bullets start flying in. Mm-hmm. That's that's a you know horror sort of suspense, but it's not it, it's not cheap you know shock or 
uh, or that sort of thing ever. It's, yeah. Um, as, even though I liked Interstellar and TDKR, to your point, they are weaker efforts. So I almost feel like after the, after those weaker efforts, not as good a reviews, this is him saying, you know, reminding people, I'm a really fantastic director and I really, really know what I'm doing. Well, I, I also think he, you know, he scales it back a little bit. This movie is only initially, I, 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 for some reason I thought it was like 97 minutes. It's, it's a little like, it's about like an, two hours. Yeah. No, it's like an hour 45 or so. Uh, it doesn't matter, but it's, it's short. It's about it's an short, hour 40. Yeah. It's, it's definitely under an hour 50, hundred percent. Um, you, you want to do a beer bet right now? No. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, he's, he's restraining himself that way. He's also very much just focusing on the, okay, how do I tell this visually? How do I aid it with sound design, score, sound effects, all of that sort of just adding on, adding to what he already has. And then, um, you know, he strips, he strips it all back. He strips the narrative back. He doesn't, he doesn't feel the need to go into a ton of exposition. Um, he doesn't feel the need to create backstories for characters that just, that you just don't really need. Um, and, and I think that's what really works here. It's in a lot of ways, it feels like he's back the place where he was sort of in the beginning with like memento where, um, you know, he's focusing on one thing, really, really the structure and the he knows how he wants to tell this immersive, terrifying, thrilling experience. And because it's it's smaller and he's not trying to say, OK, we're we're going so broad and thematic and where he's saying it's this instance, it's this this time. And he still gets Nolan. You know, he still says, OK, well, this event takes a week, this event takes a day and this event takes an hour and I'm going to intercut all of them. But but it's but it's still exciting to see that this is how he does things and the audience is buying what he's selling. You yeah. know, it's it, this is the Nolan brand of storytelling is something that still generates enough money for Warner Bros. to justify what is a gamble. Yeah, but I, I think you are. I don't think it's two hundred million. Everything I've read is between one hundred and. It's a lot of money. It's a. It's, it wasn't. It's, it was higher than one hundred fifty, but it's a lot of it's, money. It's a ton of money for for what, what it ultimately is, yeah. is. Which yeah, it's certainly a gamble. And on your point about sil- it being kind of like a silent film, Chris. Um, uh, some complaints I heard was that the accents were very thick and hard to understand at at points. And there were a couple things that I missed. Uh, due to just really thick accents, didn't need them. Unnecessary. You don't need them. It's yeah. it's all entirely unnecessary. It's all all on the face of the characters. That's that's really all you ever. I mean, there. I will say the second time around, there is a moment with Mark Rylance that destroyed me. I know, um, I know what one you're talking about. But but I mean, barring a few moments like that, you really you really don't need it. And you know. It was odd because the first time I saw it in just the regular 70, um, I didn't have a problem with dialogue at all. Seeing it on IMAX, it was a whole lot muddier. And so I don't know if that's a a difference between like the mix between the two. I know the the IMAX is an Atmos um, uh, mix, which I would assume would be better because it's all about it's not about assigning to a speaker. It's about assigning to space. Um, getting maybe a little too technical here, but versus like just a general audience or a general theater, it's like, okay, well, this goes to the center channel. This goes to, um, and, and maybe it's just because IMAX overall is louder. And so that line you're talking about, Chris, he, it's when he's on the boat and he turns around and he says something and then he says, we have to go. I don't know what he said in the first line because in IMAX, he just turns around and goes, 
Yeah. And, and that's, and that's, that is the biggest you will ever see Mark Rylance. Oh, it was, ever. it was, it was great. I felt it even though I didn't know exactly the words he had said. And you know, whenever it comes out on home video and you do subtitles, that's exactly what it will say is <laughs> bra, 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 bra. Cause not even the subtitles know what he's saying. It'll, or it'll be like, uh, it'll be like snatch with the pikey come again. We'll finally get it all. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, a game that we normally play is what can we do to make this movie better? Nah. But since we all like this movie so much, what would have made this movie bad? What could he have done to screw it up? Dialogue. dialogue. Adding a bunch of dialogue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Particularly Nolan, because that's the thing, is his big problem with dialogue is it's clunky exposition. Mm-hmm. And there was none of that here. That That is generally very big ideas. Um, like he, because that's that's sort of Nolan in a nutshell, is exploring these, these grand ideas. But he's more, far more interesting when he's doing it with the tools of, you know, basic cinema than he is when he's trying to do it. Yeah, I mean, this was a battle of good and evil, a colossal battle of good and evil, and we got that without anyone having to say it. When we're done with the carpenter shop, can we do Nolan in a nutshell? Can that be next? <laughs> so, Maybe. So an- another I don't think I don't think he can fit in a nutshell, but go ahead. An- another thing I thought could have ruined this movie is if our main character whose name I don't even know had had some dumb flashback about his love back in Britain that he just had to get back to see. Well, and and you but you get on his face that he clearly because he's sort of I I saw I I called him and the other guy who I will just leave as the other guy um i was calling them the poop bros because that's sort of how they they first met each other in my notes because i didn't know their names um but the the poop bros in in my like re-examining of it after seeing it the first time i i realized they're they're kind of like the you guys have seen hidden fortress right right? Mm -hmm. they're they're kind of like the peasants in hidden fortress they're because they're not they're not very soldierly they're not very heroic they are just trying to survive and they're like sort of more or less around all of the action and showing us, you know, as they're trying to um, navigate through it all and, you know, get onto a medic ship or get, you know, each time they're just sort of scheming. Um, And so we see, you know, it's, it's just sort of haphazardly, okay, let's go here because I see this as a way out. And then the actual soldiering is going on around them. Like obviously Tom Hardy in the air, very heroic, obviously Mark Rylance, very heroic in a very different in a very different Situation, way, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say it functions almost like a novel in that, in that you have these characters who, they are your entry point to these other aspects of mm-hmm. the story. They are not the heroes themselves. This isn't one of those films where these guys say, won the war on their own. But it's, I, I think it's interesting that he doesn't even, he doesn't even try to make them the heroes. Like, the fact, because this is not about heroism this is not and that's what sets us also apart from an average war movie is it's not just like oh this guy's a hero and he he goes in and he he comes above and we still have a character that kind of does that you know beats the odds and he's really good at what he does and he um and he just he shines but for, for the most part especially with the lack of characters having memorable names or or backstory and his use of typage it, it felt a lot like an like eisenstein it could have been battleship potemkin oh no there's there there's typage all over the i mean and nolan's always been really good with his casting like he always puts really interesting faces particularly in like supporting roles mm-hmm. but i think like when harry Styles shows up i knew exactly who that character was from the moment i saw his face i think that's perfect casting for where he ends up going later on or or killian murphy because he's He's got to pull off sort of a dual role in this. And and you have to be able to identify that in like on a dime in a moment. And he's able to because his he has a, a sort of versatile 
face, he's able to pull off both the weak and the strong, and you buy it. Also, as soon as he got on that boat, I, I was like, this is a German. They picked up a German. This is good. This movie's going... Hmm. But hmm. Uh, I, I was wrong, thankfully, because it, was, it, it really worked how it was. Yeah. So the point about uh, heroism and how this is really more about survival... That what's funny about that? That's not just this movie. That is the story of Dunkirk. Yeah, no, is exactly. That is, the, that is kind of the paradox in the British, almost the British soul. Mm-hmm. Is what Dunkirk means is that it was the the act of heroism was the survival, which in many ways we have that too, which is Pearl Harbor. Right. So I'll throw this out here. I'm sure you guys have seen or at least aware of Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. Oh yeah, Christopher Nolan's Pearl Harbor. I no, I don't. Or would it just be I, I a retread? I don't. I don't think he does it though. Like it. It feels like someone else. I don't know who makes the American Pearl Harbor, but like it, make I, it like this. Yeah. I, I. I. I think Nolan. Like the thing that works is there is there is a British identity throughout Correct. this this entire. Thing. I agree. Um, and I think all of the extras that he hired were British extras. And, and see, that is just so exciting because again, it's not like you know, except for Brexit, it's not like Britain's really you know, what everyone else in movie culture is talking about. Mm-hmm. It's China yeah. or it's, you know, it's the world at large or it's superheroes. Here's something that happened in 1940 to British people. And we don't like British people anymore because they're not, you know, relevant or cool or whatever. <laughs> it's just, it's so audacious and ballsy. I love it. Well, what about you? You brought up the, you know, the fact that it's the entire thing is about the, the survival. I think the way that they handled uh, Churchill's, I forget what they called the, the speech, Churchill's famous speech. Fight them on the beaches, yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Um, was so perfect, like, especially coming at that moment yes. towards the very end, mm-hmm. it would have ruined it if it went into like a, oh, let's turn on the that's radio. That's another thing. I le- I'm glad you mentioned that because that's another thing that a lesser film would have done is cast, have Churchill in the movie and have yeah. a scene where yes. Churchill says, we have to get them off the beaches. Yeah. It it wouldn't have it would have rang so false and it would have completely taken me out of the film instead of like we are living in the world of these characters. Right. This is not a historical record. This is an emotional record. And it works so well. I love that this sums up the British like survival is part of the British culture. That's what they are. And and you compared it to like a Pearl Harbor film for us. But I don't I don't think that is uh, our equivalent. I think the American uh, mythos or whatever is more of the D-Day and we have already had that film which is the one that I think people are going to draw comparisons with the best war Correct. movie since Saving Private Ryan okay then let me throw that out to you guys Um, Saving Private Ryan at least the Normandy invasion scene is a pinnacle moment in war movies after that every war movie tried to rip off the Normandy invasion mm-hmm. scene do we see much like every movie after Dark Knight wanted to be like Dark no. Knight, do we think they're going to try and do Dunkirk? No, because I don't, I don't think any Joe Schmo can walk in and try to. Well, they can't, but do you think they'll try? Well, I don't. I don't think a studio. Like I think, I think if Joe Schmo walks into a studio and says, "Hey, you saw Dun- Dunkirk? Here's what I'm going to do," they're going to be like, "No, that's way too big of a risk." Yeah, you're like I. I think just on the surface, it is. It's easier to sell. Like, well, it's going to be action, and it's going to be yeah. you know, even if it's Christopher Nolan can do that. You can't. Well, dude. that's the thing. Yeah. This this didn't get made because it's a, a World War Two movie. It got made because it was a Christopher Nolan movie, and it still is yeah. being seen because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. Now, yeah, if it that's, passes that's, some magical number line, a half a billion dollars or whatever it is, where people think World War Two movies are going to be popular and profitable. We'll see a World War II cinematic universe with all the different generals having their own movie. How do you feel about that, Chris? Because I actually, here's the thing, is at face value, I thought, oh my God, I hate that. But then the more I thought about it, the idea of just having a bunch of World War II movies and then the same actors play in different movies, I actually kind of like that. 
I think that's a good, not Dunkirk. I don't want Dunkirk Wait, to be a part of that. Is this Gary Oldman, Winston Churchill movie, the launch of this? <laughs> I mean, okay, is it? So, so, so you is get it? Churchill and then you get uh, Roosevelt and you get Stalin and then you get the Yalta convention movie is, is their Avengers where they all come together and play off of each other. No, I, I'm not seeing these. I'm not reviewing these. See, again, at, at face value, it sounds absolutely absurd and borderline offensive, but like the end result would be cool. I, f- I think it would be cool. But it's it's the type of thing I feel like there there has to have been like a BBC miniseries that sort of does this thing. Um, there is a movie that I have that it's called um, When Lions Roared, starring okay. Bob Hoskins as Winston Churchill, mm. John Lithgow as FDR, and then wait for it, wait for it. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Better, actually. Michael Caine as Joseph Stalin. Really? <laughs> what? Really? I haven't watched it yet. It won some awards, so presumably it's like eighties Michael Caine or like nineties Michael Caine. I think it was mid to late nineties. Hmm. So right before the the Michael Caine revival, the Michael Caineissance. Michael, Michael Caine revival has got to be at at uh, Austin Powers right? Gold Member. Yeah, that or I'd say Batman Begins, honestly, or Secondhand Lines, maybe. Gold Member was before those. Like I, I feel was like that. It? Yeah, it was definitely before both of those. And, and it was so, it was so popular and such a cultural thing. And 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 the whole my name is Michael Kine. Like it, it definitely, definitely, yeah. All right. Well, then and, we have it. We solved at least. We've tell us about least, it on Twitter. We solved at least one mystery. <laughs> we we've reached an accord. Moving on. So, gentlemen, uh, we don't necessarily think it's going to change filmmaking culture. That remains to be seen. I think I think it will be very influential on filmmakers of the future, but I don't think it's going to change the way Hollywood operates. Yeah. it can't. Okay, that's that's I I that definitely will happen. I'm curious if someone tries to do you know a Vietnam movie Dunkirk style. So we'll see. Um, but what was, like I said earlier, that was very cool to me is I was in a movie theater with older people and a lot of younger people. Do you guys think that this will have any cultural resonance that will get people much like Saving Private Ryan did get people talking about World War II again and get people talking about this event specifically? I don't don't think it's going to be that broad. I mean, it's like, I feel like Americans are typically pretty like self of you know they if it doesn't uh if it's not about americans in world war ii it's like oh did you know this interesting fact okay moving on like mm-hmm. i don't it, it might you know it might get a couple people to crack open a, a book but i don't think it goes culturally beyond that. i don't think we're going to start seeing history channel you know like a, a number of series that that break down different parts of the uh, Operation Dynamo. The only thing I think it might inspire on History Channel is like the aliens of Dunkirk. And we realize the only way <laughs> they could have really gotten them off was aliens. That's a good point. Well, they had they had hundreds of thousands of soldiers and somehow they got them all off. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. I, 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 but I don't think this is going to spark uh, World War II interest. But I, I think some of those young or old people who went and saw it may put following on their Netflix queue. They, they may explore uh, deeper. I don't know. I, about I that. don't think so. I don't think that's going to no, be what I, tr- what I truly hope I'm not naive, but what I truly hope is that maybe people go and Google Dunkirk or something like that. Even if they don't pick up a book, they just Google this story or just I they mean, it plants in their seat. It just, it fills me with hope thinking that, you know, anytime these things risk getting lost to time, that something like Dunkirk comes along and makes it relevant. See, I think they're going to watch a YouTube video and move on. No, you know what? <laughs> That's more than they would have done otherwise. I'm, you ju- know? I'm, I'm telling you, this movie was so so good and so clearly a masterwork that it's going to 
move to further establish Nolan as being the master that he clearly is becoming. And all of his other movies, I wouldn't say had a a gimmick, but either they were really big in space or it had the dreams or it was Batman or it had the thing where it went all backwards. This is just a straight up film. This is a film start to finish a traditional film and he shows he is a master while doing it. I mean, it's still, it still has the Nolanisms though. It still has the, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who were confused by the timeline and, and all of that. Like I thought would, when, at what point did you guys get the sort of, I'm not sure I was? did, but here's the thing. I'm not sure I did, but at the same time I was just, I, I got what it wanted me to get, which was okay. that this was awful. Okay. You know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it didn't want me to have an intellectual so, so response. You, it wanted me to have an emotional so response. So you, you weren't even putting together. I, no, the, I was just like, okay, they're coming on the boats and they're hanging okay. out on the beach. I, I knew when it got dark and then daylight again, that the timelines had split uh, because yeah. they had been on that boat overnight when the, when it sunk. And then uh, much later we, we see a flyover of the blue boat and people swimming to Later, right. it finally like I was working the pieces together, and and about the third time around, uh, when the I don't want to spoil too much, but about the third time around, I was like, okay, I get the whole thing. I figured out the whole mm-hmm. storyline, and it it's an emotional storyline. It is not a, a sequential storyline. There you go. Because for me, uh, once there was one character who he was on a boat with somebody else, but then you saw him later on a boat elsewhere. Right. I won't say who, but whenever that happened, I thought, wait a minute. And I thought, well, I could sit here and try and figure it out and try and tangentially put it together. But then I thought, you know what? Instead, I mean, that's that's not what it's about. Like you said, Jake, it's supposed to be an emotional storyline. It's supposed to be how you are feeling as you're being hit with these things. OK, well, then let me ask you this, because I do. I want to get in a little bit into criticism. I don't have much. But Go I, have, I have a little bit. Um, so the inner titles didn't work for you then. They didn't convey what he was setting up in that. You're so the mole is obviously this. The storyline of the mole takes place over the course of a week. The storyline of the I, sea oh, yeah, I saw that and I, I didn't know what that meant. Oh, okay. no, nope, didn't get it until just now, really. Yeah, okay, yeah. Nope. Um, see, it was it was the mole one week. I at, at that point I was like, is this like a British way of saying week one? Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure, you know, exactly. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I knew of the Dunkirk evacuation, but I didn't know many details. So I didn't know how long it took. So I was thinking, okay, maybe this takes a while. And then we get to see one day and I was like, well, that's, that's weird. And it was, it was when we got to the air one hour where I realized, oh, okay, these are, these are time frames for each of these I thought events. they were just See, stating never, the amount of time it took to cross the channel and those things. And I was like, I don't know what the mole is yet, but that thing's slow. <laughs> that thing is He's going to swim it. <laughs> That's and great. See, and, and here's the thing about Nolan, and he can get away with this, is you don't mind being confused by his movies because he's you, tr- you, you can have trust, trust in him, yeah. but he also trusts the audience to follow along where he's that, that, Yeah, exactly. That even if they're not necessarily cleaning onto in a memento, like way, knowing exactly what's going on, at even given point in time, they're still invested yeah. and they'll figure it out later. So uh, I only have a couple of complaints, but like, I, I think, I think Jake, you, you said masterpiece. I don't disagree. There are a couple things that I, I do feel within this. Like, I mean, I, I've read several reviews that say, Oh, well, the characters need to be fleshed out more. Oh, we need a little more explanation here or there. I don't, I don't think that's necessary. I think any of those things would destroy what he is doing at the core of this. Um, but I do think, um, the, the spatial kind of, relationship between things was a little bit confusing as far as especially with the mole storyline 
where they, they end up on a lot of boats mm-hmm. and there's one point where they end up, the poop bros end up out to sea and then they end up back on a beach and they, I would have liked to know a little bit more about what that relationship was, like where that was in relationship to Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. And, it, it certainly seemed like Branagh could just see him and was like, mm, target practice. And <laughs> And that didn't feel quite right. I mean, clearly they they explained in a, a quick line of dialogue, sort of. This is this is further out, but um, and maybe it's because I also don't understand the geography of um, Dunkirk and the beach and those sorts of things. That that could have been part of it. I, but I thought he could have done just a little more to um, explain it. Do we do we absolutely need it? Maybe not. But well, I think what you're saying opens up a larger conversation about what qualifies as a masterpiece, because when you really get down to it, I could like, you know what I mean? I could go to Vertigo and start saying, yeah, and I'm, and I'm not up. I'm not saying it's not. A and, well, and I, and I would say that even to some of the critics say, well, you know, the characterizations and things like that. Did the movie set out to do what it wanted to do in a way that it couldn't possibly be bettered? And yeah. I I. He, he sure accomplishes could, yeah. his goal. And that's, and that's my problem with something like the dark Knight rises. I think he had a goal or interstellar and he, he accomplished things very well in, in many places, but there are, there are holes in it. Whereas this, like I I'm now nitpicking spatial relationships. Right, exactly. Yes. It's, it's airtight. What, yeah. what he did is going to be one, one point near the end of like a, a continuum of movies with a lot of dialogue and movies with very little. And his is an excellent point on that thing. But Movie reviewers are like, it's not close enough to the middle where we have all these traditional things in it. We're going to look back on yeah. those reviews in 30 years and laugh at them like we look back on Citizen Kane negative reviews now. They're wrong. They missed the picture. <laughs> OK, well, then to that point, it seems like even though his movies universally get good uh, reviews on Rotten Tomatoes because it's kind of like you can't really give him a bad review. He's, if, he's proficient at what he does, yeah, even if he so, falters a little exactly, bit. Sure. But they still have to nitpick. But he's... Uh, but again, he's got a wonderful relationship with the audience. Is He's also a little bit persona non grata with the Academy. People are saying that this is already a surefire Academy Award nominee. How Obviously, sight unseen, haven't seen the other pictures coming out this year. But just at face value, how do you think that this will do in... I don't care. Well, I mean, but it's one of those things. Is this such a... Will it be a cultural landstone? Are they going to like Mad Max and say, you know what, this is just a great piece of filmmaking? Or is it just going to be replaced by, you know, transgender gypsies? It could, it could, it could Mad Max and sweep technicals. Mm. Like that's, that's yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I already think I'm eating my um, words from last uh, or two episodes ago when I said Baby Driver would win sound design and sound or sound mixing and sound editing. Yeah, uh, no. It, and that's, that's the thing yeah. that like the, somehow the sound design here is so perfect and so crucial and yet you could take it out and the film would totally function right yeah like that's that's the thing they that, both on either side they're the the sound and the score is saying this is the story of dunkirk and then the visuals are saying this story of dunkirk they mm-hmm. come together and all together it's a horrifying experience yeah it's purposefully it, so. it's a matter of one plus one equals three it's sort of mm-hmm. a thing where it's like it's visually it's already a perfect film and then you add that on top and it's like it adds something that i didn't even know i needed but this movie is is saying something that is so in my opinion antithetical to what the culture at large is saying particularly hollywood culture that's why i'm just curious if nolan's just completely he's in touch with his audience but if he's just so out of step with what hollywood is saying if that it it's just going to land with a thud come Academy Awards. Time. I mean, but that's the thing. I don't care. But, but it, it was also triumph of the human spirit, triumph of the, the the little people. 
and uh, the bad guys were Nazis, and we didn't even really see them anyway. I I feel like I feel like it it could still it could still have a shot. No, I, I, it'll be nominated, but if it's just you know like a okay, yeah, here, pat you on the back. Yeah, I don't I don't think. So. Let me ask you this: Do you think Mark Mark Rylance has a chance of supporting actor? Mm-hmm. As low key as it is, not really. No, I but think then he again, does. the Acad- here's the thing: the Academy really likes British people. And they really like him. They really like him. They really like British people. So that could be in this film's favor. Mark Rylance is called, according to IMDb's uh, write-up on him, the the greatest stage actor of his generation, which I did not know. But it's very clear that he's talented. However, I'm very uh, he's great. Don't get me wrong, but I'm very petty about Mark Rylance because he won Best Supporting Actor over Sylvester Stallone as Rocky (laughs) Balboa in Creed. You were really upset about that. Actually, that was the last thing I've ever watched in Academy Awards history was whenever that happened i thought i'm just on two different wavelengths me and I, the academy do not get along anymore i re- when, i remember that although mark rylan's totally no he's it. yes and no but whenever you say i don't care regarding the academy awards i agree i'm just waiting hoping that they're going to change my mind and hoping Dunkirk I mean, will be when they change my i was mind. very i was honestly very pleased with a lot of things that happened with the academy awards this past year i still don't care though like it's not it means nothing to me yeah, I, I, I just I have to make it not care so to protect my heart. You're, yeah, so I you're, don't get hurt. You're you're more defensive. Yeah, with so it. I, I don't get hurt by it. <laughs> so so win or lose, where does Nolan go from here? Do we know yet? The moon. Oh yeah, that is next, right? Okay, well let, let's throw that out there. And this is halfway done, you know, snarky. But people say Nolan, James Bond. I kind of feel like that was Skyfall. You know what I mean? There's not really what. No, he I, do? I disagree. Um, he, I mean, I don't think he has anything necessarily to say to James Bond that hasn't been said because I feel like the James Bond series was already trying to Nolan up. Do, do you ever? Does he ever take another franchise? Period. I he I think he would take James Bond if if they came to him with the right um, sort of. I mean, the the thing is, is Nolan is a guy now that operates with Final Cut every time. And I don't know if, you know, going into a franchise like that, he's going to be given that sort of carte blanche. So I don't know if he he could. But he said in interviews in the past that he would love to direct a James Bond film. OK, would and, it be part and of very, this? Very influenced by them. Would this be um, a Christopher Nolan James Bond or would it be a Daniel Craig James Bond? What do you mean by that? The Daniel Craig James Bond Sirius has a very defined aesthetic, which I would argue is Nolan-esque, but a very defined aesthetic, whereas, of course, Christopher Nolan has his thing. Would he would he make a movie that's part of the Daniel Craig series or would that end and then he does his no, own? No, he thing? would have his he would have his own actor, Tom Hardy, whoever he decided to cast. It didn't matter. Yeah, he, he finds an Australian auto mechanic and they make one movie. <laughs> OK, and that may be what it is, is it's just the single Christopher Nolan's but that, that's a, that's exactly what it would be too because I I mean with with uh, Honor Match Secret Service like it was a huge bump in production value and everything and then the series went back down to the you know where it was which was just like doing its own thing fine schlock so Jake I I just threw out the James Bond thing so what does everyone actually want to see from Christopher Nolan I mean whatever he's got as long as it's not some weird preachy like getting too big like i want i guess here's what i want from chris nolan i want him to stay focused and constrained on a single idea yes and i never want to chase an academy award obviously the universe is a little too big for him he i mean others would have utterly failed at interstellar but i want him reined in a little more than that 
Other than that, I don't care. Do Does anyone ever want to see him do a small, intimate character drama, which he has no interest in? He wants to do big movies, but would anyone want to see that? I mean, I watch whatever he makes, but I'd rather see him tackle something like horror next. Just directly take on horror. Hmm. Now, Chris doesn't want to see Preachy, so I love it that he said that. I would actually really, really like to see Christopher Nolan do a biblical epic. Yeah. Hmm. Whether it's a gospel narrative or whether it's something from the Old Testament, I feel like if he brought us street level into ancient Palestine, that that could be incredibly effective because his ability to generate emotion is, you know, second to none just through storytelling, visualization, sound, et cetera, et cetera, all the things we've talked about. Second to none, if we were to take one of those stories, it would be pretty, pretty groundbreaking. I I would actually like to see how he handles that because I, I don't think it would be preachy one. And two, I think... It would be very interesting to see. He would definitely come up with a way to, if it's particularly if it's, you know, the gospel of, of Jesus sort of thing, um, a way to portray the miracles that I think would be, mm-hmm. I don't know what his, what his framing would be, but he would definitely have one. And it would be interesting to see how he approaches that. Like yeah. it's, it's too, you know, it's, it, it's too titillating for him to not try to find the, yeah, the way to, go to piece that together. And, and I think, I think the only way we're going to go and see a sword and sandals movie these days is if somebody like Nolan brings it to us. And, and he cast Christian Bale and Joel Edgerton and, oh wait. And yeah, exactly. Well, actually no. Christian Bale, um, played, uh, that, that yeah, was yeah, the yeah. played Jesus. Did he? And what? Yeah. In a made for TV movie, Mary, mother of Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Christian Bale was Jesus. Um, but anyway, actually had he done been her that oh, could have the, been pretty the, spectacular but do we need, i don't know i don't know yeah. there shouldn't have been a been her remake yeah first and foremost but um i feel like he would get it and since he's got a good relationship with his audience i don't feel like he would do something that's i'm not going to say blasphemous but something that's purposely provocative right um that's, i think it would that's be not very, his mo yeah that's not his mo i think it just I feel like it would fit him like a glove. I'd like to see that. I'd rather him do an original take on like the life of Caesar type thing or just the politics of Rome before the fall. Something along those yeah. lines. That would be that would just be fantastic. Yeah, all of the above. All of the above. Yeah, he hasn't really I mean, this is the most historical he's really gotten. So mm-hmm. that that would I I would love to see him dive back into something that that has a costume piece element to it because I think that's maybe an untapped uh sort of avenue for him that he's he, you know, is clearly good at here and would clearly be like I, just the eye that he has for casting and that sort of thing. I, I'd be very interested to see where he takes something like that. What about actors? Any actors you want to see him work with? Bill Murray. Was that meant to it, both? I mean, I, it was initially a joke, but the more I think about it, I think I think it would be very interesting to see what he gets out of Bill Murray. And Bill Murray has a face. Mm-hmm. Bill Murray has a most like, actors do. He can, <laughs> but he has he has particularly like the older he gets, the more of just a like a uh, a very uh, heavy heart, a very sad eyes that. Uh, I think would be perfect for for Nolan to mine. Yeah, this isn't to imply that he's bad with actors, which he's not by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not an actor's director. He makes his movies and then casts it with the people who are appropriate for the parts. Sure, yeah. So I'm actually not going to answer my own question. I'm more interested in what he's going to do next and then cast the appropriate people for it as opposed to he needs to cast these people. I wanted to work with these people. I'm more interested in what the movie is. What about you, Jake? You got anybody? No, I, I just want I just want him to keep bringing me these things I've never seen before and these people I've never seen before. So is he is he your guy right now? 
And Edgar Wright's Edgar Wright's my number one, but but this this just bumped his stock up even higher. And I was already a Nolan fan, but like I said, I ha- I had those complaints about his narratives not being rock solid. But this just made me forget about it by by being a more emotional tale than some of his other movies for me. Right on. How how high does Dunkirk rank for you guys? Number one. All right. It was. I thought it was that walking out the first time, and I was like, I'm I'm probably going a little too high. The second time around, sealed it. Like it's. It's really solid. Yeah. It's and and the thing is, is it is a film that no one else could have could mm-hmm. have made. Maybe PT Anderson, but I don't think he would have gotten it on the scale. And it would have been three hours. Not necessarily. And PT Anderson PT Anderson can work short. Punch yeah. and Love. I feel like this is something that he would have made. It would have been the same movie. It would have what, been three hours. What about PT Anderson's uh, Pearl Harbor? I'd watch that. Let's get. You know what? Pearl Harbor. I feel like Pearl Harbor is right for a remake it's been 20 years and and to make a good and to, and to make and you know that that minor fact it's been how long extra, since tor 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 exactly make a good one <laughs> uh okay jake where you have it ranked i went back and forth because i really like memento and, and i like i like the dark knight uh and i was thinking it was gonna be third or second and i've just been kicking it around and it the more i think about it the better it gets when i rewatch it i'll probably just slot it in at number one I would probably say there's, yeah, I have to divide between the personal favorite that I could watch any day, which would be uh, The Dark Knight, and then what I actually think is the best, and that would be Dunkirk. I feel like those are two two of the ones that he'll be remembered for forever. It's so bizarre for me to say he's made the best superhero movie ever, perhaps, and then this is better than that. This is better than all superhero movies, which I think is probably true. So The Dark Knight is number one for you guys, other than... Other than Dunkirk, I really like Memento too. Yeah, I mean, I I'm just I'm yeah. You, you can you can I'm start a nut. You can uh, you can uh, yeah. start just wagering with yourself. I mean, for me for me it's prestige, and it's been prestige for a long long See, time. See, and that's the thing is again the things that Warner Brothers will let him do is he yeah. just says, hey, I want to make a, a a magic trick into a movie. Yeah, I'm like yeah, sure, go for it. You know. He, it, but he can do anything, and he takes advantage of it. He's not, you know, just Michael Baying it up. Yeah, it's He's, so simple and so complex, and so like it's, and it is, it is meticulously crafted within an inch of its life, and it's, it's really yeah, a, a marvel. And he is just truly a guy who likes making movies, but likes pushing boundaries. And look, look at how fun without being obnoxious about it. And, and look at how fun Inception is, uh, which is not even in my top three or four from him, but I still really liked it. Um, look at look at how much of a cultural impact that film had, and yet I'm still yeah, going to put Dunkirk. And it's insane. The idea, you know, like the story is insane, and it was a huge event. Mm-hmm. But do you guys remember when Inception came out? Mm-hmm. It was a like the talk as it was coming out was this is going to make or break Nolan as sort of because a I mean, non Batman guy, yeah. Well, and as as a guy who gets final cut on big big movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big risk. I mean, it was, it would be an even bigger risk now. Um, but it was a big risk as an original property based on nothing with a very, uh, complicated concept that, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people just get confused with and say, oh, throw their hands up and get angry. Um, but it, it did like, I remember being so terrified that it wasn't going to do well and that it was going to bomb, um, leading up to it because I was so looking forward to it. Well, and if it were anybody else, it would have. It, it, it probably, the, you know, and, and honestly, if it wasn't coming right off of the dark night, I wonder if it would have done as well as it did. And and look, if it were anybody else, we'd have inception too. 
already. That's, yeah, exactly. That's true. Which we may yet, but he won't have anything to do with that. So at least there's that. Okay, guys, I want to. We've we've gone broad into into Christopher Nolan land, which I think is totally justified. And it could get even worse. We could go into Interstellar, the <laughs> limits of the universe. We, we could, but I want to bring it back into Dunkirk as we close out. And actually, I'm going to roll spoilers right here because I need to get into spoilers. So, guys, to to close out this review, what were your favorite parts? Jake, after you. Uh, my my favorite part. I, I, when watching it, I was gonna say when the when the boats finally show up and everyone cheers because that was like the the Capra moment for me where humanity just comes mm-hmm. to get. But it, it's Tom Hardy's silent flight over Dunkirk, over the beaches. That's that's the that's the moment that's gonna stick with me, and also the moment that. Just, I don't know if it was the, the way the colors were, the way the plane was, but most reminded me of Powell and Pressburger and and one of the Archer's films. Mm. You know, that's that's interesting because that I the thing that I got from it was Dunkirk was like a resort town, and you get in because you haven't you haven't seen a whole lot of the town, but in that shot you get like this is not a war zone. This place shouldn't mm. be a war zone no. in just one shot, but it is it is very Powell and Pressburgery because it is these these lavish colors and and just the gorgeous like it looks like that airplane is on should be on strings yeah um so i'm gonna go ahead and do a couple as well nolan no one does cross cutting of action better than nolan that's that was just what inception was all about and then in this circumstance whenever the one soldier was potentially drowning Mm -hmm. meanwhile they were trying there there was just malt and then they were also in the boat potentially drowning there was just multiple action all happening at once each one incredibly intense you never know what's going to happen that was just masterful filmmaking also tom hardy whenever he comes back around and stops the german plane everyone thinks they're going to die and then oh tom hardy comes and saves the day again um but i would say probably my 1a favorite moment (laughs) is the one you mentioned earlier chris is him reading uh churchill's speech and they'll Mm -hmm. fight us on we'll fight them on the beaches we'll fight them on the landing grounds we'll fight them in it you know Mm-hmm. I can't hear that without getting misty eyed. And that happened to me in that theater. Mm-hmm. So favorite moment. Okay. If we're, if we're going to go multiple, multiple pieces, um, I'll you just start right at the beginning and list out the entire I'll, movie. Yeah. I'll, I'll start with my, I guess my minor favorite moment, which is right at, uh, I think it's just before they read the, uh, the, the paper and the ticking stops. So they're on the train and, uh, Fionn Whitehead puts his head up on, on the blanket and then the ticking stops. And suddenly it's like it's deafening because we have had this onslaught of of this momentous sound the entire time. Mm-hmm. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful way to like it it feels like it feels like a drop of water after being in a desert for days. Mm-hmm. Um but the the place that really just just slaughtered me. I mentioned it earlier, Mark Rylance when he um, he's fighting with his son about going after uh, Tom Hardy's uh, pilot friend, the, the guy from Tom Hardy's, what do you call that, squad mm-hmm. um, that, that's down. Unit, yeah. And the second time around, you know, the first time around, 
it's it's good. He's a you know he's a very convincing, compelling actor. But the second time around, knowing the information that comes later about him having a son in the RAF who uh, died three weeks in, and realizing that that is his motivation for everything that he's doing here, when he just turns around and yells at his son and tells him, "There's still a chance." Like I started bawling. It was like it it just it slaughtered me. Um, and it was, it was a combination of, I think a lot of things, the fact that he hadn't, you know, had a lot of throwaway, like trying to give you emotional nuggets and, and the fact that even like, you don't get the full weight of it the first time around it's, he has hidden it that deep inside. Um, it just, it, it totally destroyed me. Well, clearly we all love this movie. Chris, I hope you do not destroy me with your beer recommendation. Whenever we did American Sniper, it was all bud. I feel like it has to be, has to be Newcastle Brown Ale. I cannot go Newcastle Brown Ale because we are in the summer of sours. See, that's wrong. This would be, <laughs> that is just wrong. Um, and it's, you know, it's actually funny that you mentioned Budweiser because I, I'm, I am breaking a rule though. So, um, while I cannot break the rule of recommending something that's not a sour during the summer of sours, I will break a rule in, I, I do not recommend things a second time. But here's the here's the, the problem. I'm constrained to sours and I've run out of sours that are on the level of what this film is. So I'm going to recommend something that I've recommended before, um, but it has a Budweiser connection because this brewery was actually recently bought by Anheuser-Busch InBev. And now all the beer geeks are pissed, um, even though like as far as right now, like I understand, like if quality goes down, it you have right to be angry, but it hasn't gone down thus far. And so everyone should keep drinking it. This beer is Oblivion Sour Red from Wicked Weed Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, this is kind of along the lines of a few of the like the Prairie versus True, the the Flanders Reds that I've I've recommended, which are um, I've found really among my favorite style of, of the sours. Uh, so this is aged with blackberries and dates in red wine barrels for between 10 and 12 months. Um, and so it has, uh, a lot of, it, it has a lot of tart packed into it and a lot of kind of rich sugary, um, sort of carameliness packed into it as well. Um, a, a lot of, a lot of flavors going on at, at play. And it's, uh, much like, um, much like the other Flanders reds that I've recommended. It really, it's, it's a really intense sip on the, the front of the tongue. And so perfect for Dunkirk. I mean, right away, it just, hit you with flavor, but then it continues to evolve as you get, you know, you, you get just a, a bit of the dates and the blackberries, not, you know, it's not this overwhelming fruit, but it's a, it's a, it's a nice little, um, it's, it's a nice little evolving 
uh, flavor to it. And then being that it's, uh, it's aged in red wine barrels, which I feel like I've been, I, I recommend a lot of barrel aged beers, but I feel like I've been actually on a bit of a red wine aging kick. It once again adds a, a dryness to it, which is really nice and really, um, really unexpected. And this is coming in at a much higher ABV than a lot of the, a lot of the sours that I've been recommending, especially the, the gozas, as I've said, those are, those are pretty low. This is an 8.7%. So this is, you know, higher than your, your average beer. Um, and it's, it's a delightful sip. It is a evolving, um, beer. And I think it's, uh, it's perfectly suited for enjoying with Dunkirk. Um, it's available sort of in and out over, uh, during the year, it sort of rotates throughout the year, usually available three to four times, um, throughout the course of a year. So if you live in a place that gets wicked weed, Oklahoma is not one of those places, then, uh, look for, look for oblivion. It's delightful. Sneak it in when you uh, go see Dunkirk again. Wait, so this is the beer they passed in through the train window? (laughs) No, (laughs) No, Jake, funny you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the beer that they slipped in is the one that you should be slipping in, sneaking Which in. Which was not Newcastle. I, okay, what what was it then? It was not Newcastle. Uh, Doesn't matter. I don't know. Hunter saw uh, it in IMAX, so he might know what it is. Yeah, you would think that I would be able to see it because it was like as tall as I am, the beer. But anyway, what you should be drinking, do, the, do your duty and drink Newcastle Brown Ale while eating fish and chips with malt <laughs> vinegar. I don't think any of those things were available on Dunkirk Beach. <laughs> Oh yeah, but this Asheville, North Carolina sour <laughs> beer was just being handed out left and right. It That's may what have kept been. Them alive. It may have been. You know, they they were sustained on on aged dates, blackberries, and, and the, red wine exactly barrel beer. That's exactly what was going on there. So he's not allowed to recommend a non a non uh, sour. I I can. So pair with the uh, Newcastle Brown Ale. All right, Dunkirk is currently playing at cinemas nationwide and across the pond. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with my recap of Week 9 in the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League Summer Season. The sky is blue I saw pretty people I saw pretty fools Yeah, yeah But there's no fools Like the ones I love Oh, no So good Lord Almighty Take me home I wanna go home Just take me That's bright at night I saw buildings and I saw all the light But I found that hope wasn't made for me Get me back to Nashville, Tennessee 
And now it's time for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League Recap. Each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports-style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight-screen cineplex with real-world movies, where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit wsampod.com slash league to sign up and get all the details. Let's dive into our recap of week nine of the summer season. First off, FML can be bizarre. When you start playing the game, you think that you want new releases because those are the movies people go and see. But once you play FML a while, you see it's usually the second or third week when movies really come to be the value you need to score the perfect Cineplex. Then, every now and then, the perfect Cineplex rests on some movie that you didn't even realize was still out there. This time, it's Transformers The Last Night. Yep. Yep, that's what it is. So, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I don't even have much to say about it. I mean, I played it, but it's just because I had a few bucks left over after I filled half my screens with the newest must-see comedy, Girls Trip, which wasn't Best Performer, but still ended up being the anchor of the week. So, the perfect Cineplex ended up being four screens of Girls Trip, one screen of Despicable Me, and three screens of Transformers. In our league, first place went to I Smell Cineplex and Candy, who played the 4X Girls Trip, but followed up with three Wonder Woman and only one screen of Transformers. I bet on two baby drivers and one car, so I came in second. And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm still happier that I play baby drivers and cars instead of, you know, three screens of Transformers. What about you, Chris? How'd you do? Well, first of all, update on Transformers. Last time we spoke, uh, the which was like probably a month ago uh, in the FML recap, I swore that Anthony Hopkins played a robot. He doesn't play a robot. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, moving on. Uh, I did great. And by great, I mean, of the people who actually filled out a Cineplex this week, I was second to last, and the person who was in last was only in last because their whole gimmick this season is they play the top movie that they can fit in all eight cineplexes. So anything that is around the $100 mark. I like that her gimmick prevented you from fully executing your gimmick. <laughs> I, know, I know. Like you got out gimmicked this week. But Jake, last time we spoke... We uh we did speak about Valerian and we spoke about Girls Trip and uh-huh. I think I was right on both of them. Yeah, you 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 were you were right. Uh, it came around. I knew I knew Girls Trip was gonna gonna do really well when I saw the preview numbers. They weren't great, but I I I went and I just looked at um one of the local cineplexes where you can book your individual seat. Yeah. And I saw the first three rows closest to the screen were also full, along <laughs> with every seat behind it. I wish there was just some number like percentage of screens with the seats in the first row sold because that means somebody wants to see it if you pre-order a front row ticket to a movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but w- once I saw that, uh, nobody's nobody was sitting front row for Dunkirk. Nobody was sitting front row for for Valerian. So I, I, I knew what I was playing this week. It wasn't as clear cut, but I had seen multiple groups like big groups that it went to when I went to see Dunkirk that were there in like matching t-shirts ready to see um, girls trip. So it, it was, it was the must play. I had to go with it, but they couldn't get in and they saw despicable me 18. instead. <laughs> you know, they're going to keep making those movies. They yeah. never, they, they never stop making movies that make money. Despicable me is going to be the now that's what I call music of, uh, of animated movies. <laughs> now that's what i call animated movies <laughs> all right do you want to run down the new films for this week yeah sure 
All right. Uh, first up, little-known author uh, Stefan King sees his relatively unknown series of novellas brought to the big screen by Danish director Nikolaj Arcel. If you thought Jeff Goldblum was scary as the devil, just wait until you see Matthew McConaughey as the man in black in The Dark Tower when previews open Thursday night. Up next, Catherine Bigelow directs FN2187, a.k.a. Finn, in an intense drama about race relations, police violence, and riots in an American city. When Detroit drops this Friday, we will get a peek into the American psyche and find out if audiences are ready to flock to an intense drama or if we're still seeking the escapism of superhero movies. Up next, as Relativity Media's YouTube description on the trailer for Kidnap says... The film is a heart-stopping action thriller following a mother, Holly Berry, who will stop at nothing to rescue her kidnapped son. (sighs) Yeah, I know. I know, Chris. The trailer doesn't make the movie look much better than that description. So, I mean, just, like, catch this film in a Walmart bargain bin in three months and definitely don't play it in your Cineplex. I'm going to catch, like, the only way I'm seeing this movie is if I'm at a bus terminal and it's on at 3 a.m., if I'm on a plane and this is the only movie showing, I'll just watch the floor. <laughs> okay, so for our final new release this week, Al Gore's back with a vengeance as he sets out on a warpath to brutally murder climate change deniers who failed to hear his message in an inconvenient truth. For the low, low price of 13 bucks, you can get an inconvenient sequel, colon Climactic Boogaloo, as the bottom end filler of your Cineplex. I, I, I saw the trailer for this. I thought he must have burned a lot of carbon running that tank over all those deniers. It was, I mean, he put a lot of stuff out into the atmosphere. But he ended their life, so I think he was like carbon neutral. <laughs> oh my God. I know nothing about this movie. Eh, it's just a sequel to An Inconvenient Truth. Well, it's other than what that. what you'd expect. Yeah, exactly. Like, even in the trailer, it was like, people laughed at me in the first movie for saying this, and now that thing actually happened. So did he up- update his PowerPoint presentation to a keynote presentation? <laughs> Does anybody really use PowerPoint anymore except me at work? <laughs> I'm sure my wife does. <laughs> All right, what, what are you what are you playing, Chris? What you what are you playing this week? Well, Jake, here's uh, I've I've got a, a a bit of a mix, and I am really leading heavy with Detroit. Uh, not because I think it's going to be bad, because I really want to see it. But coming in at what is it like 167 bucks? Uh, it, you know, it's not over the top, but I don't think this movie is going to do gangbusters. If it, if it has like any longevity at all, I think it's going to be a bit of a sleeper. I mean, uh, Catherine Bigelow's recent films seem to kind of do that. Like, uh, the Hurt Locker, you know, infamously came out and nothing really happened. And then like nine months later had this resurgence. And then Zero Dark Thirty was, uh, I guess it had a lot of, talk behind it as it came out but then it had it had some pretty good legs so i'm thinking detroit is not going to do great on opening weekend uh it doesn't mean that i'm not looking forward to it and then so i've got four of those and i'm rounding out with war of the planet of the apes kidnap which i really tried to get more in but i just couldn't find the zero buck cineplex where it fit and then finally rounding off with the wonder woman's yeah yeah see the thing about detroit is it looks so intense it looks really really intense hey Jake, and it looks like yeah have you seen a Catherine bigelow movie well no here's what i'm getting at it looks really intense to go up against like girls trip and yeah. uh spider-man it's still out it's, like it, it's not a late summer sort of movie is what you're and saying. a lot of the people who you know maybe would have broke that rule to go and see dunkirk might not be ready to go and see another really intense movie. Maybe. I am. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out to see it, but I'm really excited to see Detroit. 
Yeah, and I'm not saying it's going to be bad. I'm just saying it might not connect with audiences. Yeah, and that, that's what, that's kind of what I'm banking on, though. Look, when when this steals an Academy Award nomination, people are going to go and see it in December. Yeah. Or when it gets, or no, January when it gets re-released. Yeah, maybe. What uh, what about you, Jake? What are you uh, planning on playing this week? Oh, see, uh, that's right. I, I actually tried to win some weeks, uh, mm-hmm. unlike other people on this podcast. Um, I hey, have. It's five- really hard to lose. You try it sometimes. <laughs> uh, I do it accidentally all the time. It can't be that hard. I have <clears throat> five girls trip because. I, I just think people are going to continue to go and see it. The price is getting, it's staying right about where I want it to be. And then I have Despicable Me because someone sold their soul to the devil to get the, the gross up and mm-hmm. uh, and the big sick. I, I just think Girls Trip's going to take uh, best performer this week. That's that's what I'm betting on. Uh, Jake, I actually think the plural of Girls Trip is Girls' Trip. <laughs> is that right? I, I, I think so. I, okay. It's I, like, I, it's like Cole's de Sac. You put the S on the uh, the first word. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 many girls is on a trip. Right. It's it's not it's not like one set of girls on many trips. Exactly. You, yeah. No you, matter how many times you, you see the movie, it's just one trip to New Orleans. That's it. Correct. Yeah, I, I understand. How do you plur- <laughs> pluralize Despicable Me three? Don't. <laughs> All right. If you still need more FML in your life, catch my weekly recaps and predictions each week on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take for the next Perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAMPod. We'll be right back with Hunter and some really rad recommendations. Right, folks, it is really rad recommendation time once again. And by the power of editing, Hunter is back to join us. Uh, but we're going to begin with Jake. Jake, what do you have to recommend today? Oh, this is going to be fun. So I have been trying to keep some IMDb plot keyword links between my recommendations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what I did this time, I just kind of started browsing Netflix to see if anything uh, struck my fancy that that could under action adventure. That was something like, you know. World War II, maybe something flying. Uh, I didn't know where it was going to land, but I found one. I'm going to pitch the plot. Wait, 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 Jake, Jake, hold on. Can I can I guess the keyword that ties these together? Sure. Poop on a beach. <laughs> no, there's no poop on a beach. There's no poop in this movie at all. Uh-huh. Uh, some of the acting is poop, but that's different. Okay, carry on. <laughs> Let's say um, you guys were part of the writing crew at Asylum Films. Uh, uh, do, do you guys know what Asylum Films is? Absolutely. Of course we do. <laughs> do you think? Yeah, and if you're listening to this and you don't know what it is, 
turn off the podcast because we're not for you. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. We don't, we don't, we don't want we, your support. We just had like an in-depth academic discussion of Dunkirk for an hour. And now like, if you don't, if you that don't was, know what that was, films. that was an anomaly for If us. you don't know who made Sharknado and Transmorphers fall a man. Hunter, I, that is not us. I, I feel like <laughs> your idea of where this podcast goes and where. If, like, it were, if it we're up to me, this would be full on shock jock radio. We'd yeah. have a woman taking off her clothes. <laughs> Gosh. Jake, carry on. All right. So let's say. Uh, I, I walked in at Asylum Films. I said, "All right, guys, I wrote the movie. They're going to make it. We just got to come up with a title." There's a commercial in this movie. A commercial flight flies through a time storm and ends up flying through World War II in 1940. What's a time storm, Jake? Uh, a time storm is like a, a worm, wormhole. That's not real. <laughs> it's it's it. So it, the weather's fine, and then suddenly it's stormy. There's a, a wormhole in front of you. A commercial international air flight goes through it. You come out the other side. It's nighttime, and there's a bombing going on. Okay. It's like a okay. wormhole, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Okay, I'm with you. All right, we need to name this film. I, I, I'm going to say that the name that they came up with is pretty bad, but I want to see if we can name it better. So, any, anybody got some ideas? Okay, you want us to? You want us to guess the name? I, Not guess I it. I want you guys to have, come up with a. a, a, a t- oh, some t- I, oh, okay. Well, then here's okay. Wait, hold okay, on. Go I've it. got so because I I don't have a name off the top of my head, but I do have something that will improve it, and that is Nicholas Cage above the title. <laughs> yeah, if we can at least have that. Um, well, he was a pilot in, uh, Left Behind. Sure. So that. Yeah. yeah. There's that. So, so that, yeah, it's a sequel. Um, Nazis on a plane. <laughs> Nazis no, on a plane. No, Nazis on no, a plane. They, and they never get on the plane. But that wouldn't stop Asylum from having it in the title. Well, wait, so the Nazis are flying and they're trying to get on, like, they're gremlins? They're attacking. That So they're flying planes to try to shoot down this airliner. Oh, that's disappointing. I was hoping they were, like, gremlins in that, like, the in the Twilight Zone episode. And it's, it's World War Two. It's World War Two. So it can't be something about the Red Baron. Mm-mm. I don't know. I, like, I, I got nothing other than Nick Cage is definitely in this movie. So he maybe put his own money into this movie. I, I would say that they had nothing either. Uh, because they named it Flight World War Two. Wait, no. It's just Flight World War Two. So I thought that was bad, so I kept doing some research. It's also released as Flight 1942, oh. and the IMDb description on that one is they think it, people think it's the same movie, but it sounds like no one's ever watched both of them to know. Wait, how is that possible? I don't know, but it's especially funny because this movie, they only fly back to 1940. They never fly back to 1942. It's like Sharks in Venice. There's only one shark in Venice. (laughs) I think the more pertinent thing here to mention everyone is that you just watched a movie that you would agree is one of the best you've ever seen um, from one of your favorite directors. You have an entire genre of World War II movies or just, you know, anything, any movie ever made that you can recommend and you choose Flight World War II. Okay. That is a straight up Hunter move. <laughs> you should absolutely go and watch Flight World War II. It's not quite so bad it's good, but there is a funny moment uh, where it just spirals out of control and they want to land the plane and kill Hitler. That was my favorite part of that movie. Uh, so do you see Hitler in this movie? Uh, you see pictures? Because because on this plane, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but on the plane, there's a couple historians going to a histor- uh, like a history, a World War II oh, history no. conference. So they're the ones who kind of get them all through okay, it. I just got a, I just got a much, much better uh, title is uh, Flight of the Fuhrer. Yes. Yeah, that, that yes, would be really that is, good. Much- <laughs> Anything I mean, would be better than Flight World War II. They just took two of the plot keywords and pushed them together. 
but at least flight 1942 like it can be a play on you know like they're taking flight 1942 to chicago and it ends up in you know wherever they, the the fears the the yeah. it is flight 42 they do say it isn't flight 42 like it is inter- it, the, the name of the airline is international airlines it's ia42 that's their number okay and where is this uh, where is this it's on netflix it's on hulu it 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 is it is <laughs> I, it is a movie I wouldn't have watched if Netflix didn't start auto playing movies when you highlight them for too long. <laughs> stop! <laughs> stop Netflix! No! No! Stop! Oh, more time. I'm stuck. <laughs> Jake was curious, and then he fell into the time hole. <laughs> Hunter, hey. let me ask you this: If you could subscribe to Asylum Films all of their their back catalog for one ninety nine a month, would you do it? No, because Asylum Films are purposely bad. I like okay, it's so bad it's good. It, good. In order for that to happen, I can't realize it's bad. Here's the thing: yeah. this movie. It, it fell short in a lot of ways, but someone who wrote the script was proud of it. That's what I honestly oh, really? think. I okay. think they liked it, and and they did put some effort into it. But watching watching uh, Farron Tahir, who you who you may know, who who was a uh, Raza in the first Iron Man and Captain Ro- oh, yeah, yeah. Robau from Star- he he was your he was your captain, and watching him outmaneuver some German jets. Uh, oh, by the way, in this alternate timeline, the Germans have jets. Also, in this alternate timeline, uh, everyone died at Dunkirk. So they're not the first ones to come through. Uh, it, I think they are the first ones to come through. In order to then return the, home, they have how to. How do the like, Germans have the jets? I, I don't know. They did. They, pff, they didn't really go into that. But they were like, "That's the historians were like, that's not right. They shouldn't have those yet." But it would imply that this is not the first time storm that jets have gone through, or, and they they probably the Nazis. The Nazis. See, there's just there's just a whole lot of questions. We yeah. haven't even begun to unravel the mystery of flight world war ii we could talk about this for years we we really could and and we could we could almost talk for it as long as kenneth branagh's hamlet which was also shot in 70 millimeter and is available on blu-ray but we're not gonna talk about it for that long so go and watch flight world war ii directed (laughs) by emily edwin smith for asylum films yeah so if you're looking for a nice nice world war ii double feature sometime dunkirk and flight (laughs) world war ii (laughs) per jacob graves what about what about you Hunter, what do you have to recommend? Can you make this a triple feature? Uh, actually, I can make it a quadruple feature. Um, one of my favorite movies, Guns of Navarone. This was actually what I was expecting Dunkirk to be because I knew that Nolan was big on men on a mission war films. Mm-hmm. But it occurred to me he already made that. It was Inception. That's yeah. what that's what Inception was. Um, Dunkirk wasn't a men on a mission war film. This is the you know pinnacle of that genre. Gregory Peck, Anthony Quinn. Uh, David Niven, American, uh, Spaniard, and a Englishman who don't really get along, but they're allies, and they have to team up to blow up some guns, some Nazi guns, before they can blow up them. Just what more do you need? Um, it is available as a double feature with Bridge on the Wiver Kwai on Blu-ray, which I know you don't care for, Chris. I really don't. But but anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, make it a quadruple feature alongside. Uh, alongside flight world war ii dunkirk really was missing a good whistling scene now that i think about it they had all that time on the beach you know what you're right that's actually what instead of the score being that electronic thing that really intense noise it should have been whistling <laughs> so chris do you have a, a another film in the world war ii canon or something from a different conflict perhaps or a time travel world war ii movie that's also or on the all table. of the above I, I have none of those. I actually, I, I considered doing a World War II movie by uh, David Lean, actually, called In Which We Serve, um, which I, I think has, you know, some 
I, I won't say too much because it's not not my actual recommendation, but I will say if you liked Dunkirk, uh, you should check this out. It's uh, it has some some sort of connections narratively as far as it's it's more about the group and and that sort of thing. And it's a it's a great shorter David Lean film, which you know you don't get a whole lot of those. there. Yeah, certainly not post nineteen fifty five. Yeah, um, but my recommendation is I actually mentioned it in my intro to Dunkirk. Um, it is a one of my favorite silent films and that is sunrise a song of two humans and uh if by chance you haven't seen this or aren't aware of it i'm going to real quickly read the letterbox description because i i think it's it's perfect um a married farmer falls under the spell of a slatternly woman from the city who tries to convince him to drown his wife like she does like 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 Like, one would like they do yeah um and this is this is a silent film coming sort of at the Towards the end of the silent era, um, made in 1927, it actually was sort of uh, Murnau's downfall. It was apparently very expensive to make and did not make a lot of money, but uh, has, you know, since then become sort of a, uh, a a gem of of the era with what he's doing with narrative, what he's doing with um, exploration of, you know, pushing the boundaries of sort of what you can get away with. Um, in in silent cinema and it's uh somewhat famous for its sparse inner titles so even as a silent film there's not a, a lot of quote-unquote dialogue and and as the movie goes along it gets even less and less because apparently we're now hated um hated inner titles um so it's really an immersive uh sort of emotional visual experience um and this is available to rent in you know the the general places voodoo itunes amazon uh, Google Play, but I would recommend it if you can get your hands on. There is a region-free Eureka Blu-ray, which actually has two versions of this film. It has the American movie tone version, which was so. This is the very early advent of sort of recorded sound, so it was still a silent film, but had a pre-recorded score to it. Um, and then it also has a Czech version of of the film that has the Czech titles, and then. Um, just subtitles uh, with that. And there's, there's slight differences between them. A lot of times with uh, back in, in the silent era, they would actually shoot with two cameras, the same scene. And then just one would go to one uh, distribution print. One would go to another. The movie tone is actually slightly more narrow because they had to squeeze the, uh, the audio onto the track. So it's not quite as it's even more boxy. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're a little into, you know, uh, exploring film history and that sort of thing, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to explore there. There's also a lot of supplements on this disc that, um, that are pretty good. Uh, so that is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans by F.W. Murnau, and I highly recommend you check it out. So basically if you're on Netflix and you're watching Flight World War II and once you finish with Flight World War II, will this come up as a recommend? Almost certainly. Yeah. <laughs> Almost certainly. So you have 10 seconds to decide whether or not to watch Sunrise after Flight World War II. All right, folks. Well, that is going to be a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more, including uh, links to our brand new spinoff series, The Carpenter Shop. Uh, you can also say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who's simply been hate-lessening through these credits, 
go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can even leave us a voicemail and we may just play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Strick. The Spoiler Alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash thetaylormachine. And shout out to Ben Rector for the featured music on this week's show. Find out more at benrectormusic.com. Join us in another fortnight for a brand new episode of our spinoff show, The Carpenter Shop. We will be discussing John Carpenter's underseen gym from 1995, In the Mouth of Madness. Thanks for listening, folks. Gosh, that was lengthy. You're right. That's actually what, instead of the score being that electronic thing, that really intense noise, it should have been whistling. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. Should not. It also needed more of this. <laughs> I'm cutting all of this out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to change my Wi Fi password right now. <laughs>